Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome to fall, all you guys. It's flannel season. Not quite hoodie season yet. We're approaching, though, so you can get your hopes up. That's all right. Is anybody else, like, really glad to put on pants again? Like, the shorts felt so freeing at the beginning of the summer, and now, like, it is pants season again, and I am glad for it. I know you guys are glad for it, too. Nobody wants to see my knees. The band was heavy shorts today. I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, Just take note of it when they get back up here, and uh, be glad they missed the memo about fall. Anyway, uh, that was my terrible intro, because today I have no intro, because Jesus is all over the place today. Those of you guys uh, with ADHD, Jesus is for you today, all right? Because he is just talking about everything at once, and so that's what we're going to do too. Uh, We have a conviction here at Dwell that we go straight through uh, books of the Bible, uh, trying to sort of at least pay some sort of uh, notice to every single verse and passage and hear what Jesus has for us. We believe in Scripture, believe it's meaningful, important, and life-changing for our lives. And so uh, sometimes we come across passages like this. And so what you're going to get today is three mini sermons. And you better pray that they are many, all right? Because uh, there's some good stuff in here. The only way that we can really tie them together is that there are three things today that Jesus tells us that will help you to become a better person. Uh, They are be humble, serve children, and fight temptation. Those are all three things you love doing, right? Like, you're a big fan of all three of those things. If any of you guys were like, geez, I already do that. I should probably go home. Then you need to look at the first one again uh, that says be humble because you're probably missing out on that one a little bit, right? No, there are three things that are kind of like challenging for us to do. And yet Jesus is talking about these things uh, this week. And he actually talks a lot about all of these things. Jesus talks about this all the time, these three things. And it's weird because I feel like we don't very often talk about them. What else is weird to me about this is that Jesus made humanity, right? So if you're a follower of Jesus, like that's one of like the basic kind of principles that God created humanity and he built them uh, for his own purposes, right? Like that's what God does. And so for Jesus then to come up, you know, after humanity has been created and going for a little while and be like, hey, uh, you guys are doing it, but you're not exactly doing it right. It's kind of a weird thing when you think about it, right? Like, Jesus is telling us these things, and he's like, hey, you should do these. And we're like, I don't really want to do it. And then Jesus is like, all right. Right? Like, that's like that's a strange place that we've gotten ourselves into. And if you spent any time with Scripture, then you know that the answer to this sort of question that I'm posing of why this has to happen is because of sin. Right? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. It uh, broke the entire world. No longer do we do what we should do and what we should want to do, but instead we have a desire now to do things that are against God's will and way, right? Adam and Eve introduced sin into this perfect world that God created, and then humanity became broken. We're sort of like that lawnmower that your neighbor loans you, right? And he's like, it'll cut your grass, but uh, it worked perfectly one time and has not worked perfectly since. Now you have to pull the crank seven times, and then prime it three times, then pull it another three times, and then prime it three times, and then if you hold your mouth just in the right way when you pull it that last time, maybe it'll crank, right? That's how human beings are now. We require like a lot of extra work and attention to even try and do the right thing. We're broken, 
We're messed up. We don't work the way that we're designed to work. So it takes some work to get us right. Now that's fine for you to say and to think, or for me to say, right? Like it's fine. Everyone was like, yeah, I've met people before. They're messed up, right? It goes another level when you say, when you ask yourself, like, am I this weird lawnmower that's going to take a lot of intention and focus to actually get working? Is that me? I have a convictional belief that it's all of us. And if that's true, then when we see little passages like this from Jesus, we have one option, really. I guess we have one choice. We can decide to reject Jesus and what he says, uh, which would be tricky, because then you end up in this place where you have to decide what you reject of Jesus and what you don't reject of Jesus, and then it's kind of weird and confusing. Or you can take Jesus at his word. Let this be challenging to you. Let this be confrontational to you and to the way that you're living and see if there's any way in which God wants to change you. And I believe that if we're not choosing the latter, especially collectively as a body of believers, as a family, what are we really doing here? What are we really doing here? Are you ready to ask God how you might change? Are you ready to ask God how you might have been sinful or harmful to yourself and to others? Are you ready to discover a belief that you hold that is actually wrong? Are you ready to be confronted with it? It requires some real humility to be able to admit that. But I believe that this is where true spiritual enlightenment actually comes. Not with like, you know, getting to this place where we're just like perfect humans, but getting to this place where we're willing to admit that we're constantly and very often wrong, but willing to allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit to work inside of us to make us more like he designed us to live. If my challenge two weeks ago was an appeal to live an interesting life seeking after a transfiguring God, my challenge last week was to live a life of real and daring faith, and both of those things were exciting and appealing to us, then this is where the rubber meets the road, and discipline comes in to back both of those things up. And we're sort of requiring ourselves and working hard on ourselves to change and to grow and to look more, Jesus, more like Jesus. This is the disciplined and unglamorous fuel for those flames. So, let's begin in the immortal world, words of Kendrick Lamar and be humble. All right? Uh, let's go back to verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you've been at dwell for any amount of time then you know that this is a biggie for us right jesus here is talking about humility and it was kind of a biggie for jesus right um, this is one of the most important verses about humility as jesus talks about it and it's kind of funny because i feel like when we hear a verse like this or even think about humility i think we're like getting it completely wrong we think of it like sort of like a liability that you might have or at best a cute character trait Right, like we don't really value humility in our society. That is not something uh, that we praise. Uh, if you don't believe that or understand that, then you have not been keeping up with politics at all for the past 100 years. I don't even know how long, right? Like only prideful people can win, I think. I don't think there's like an option to be a really like humble politician. That was a scathing review of politicians. I'm sorry, you're getting like behind the curtain here. Maybe someone somewhere is a humble politician. I don't think it really works that way. 
And it trickles all the way down, right? Like we say that not having sort of pride or arrogance or something like that is actually like a, a liability for you. We think that uh, humility means cowardice or t timidity, like being scared of everything. And we prize boldness and brashness, right? Like those are the things that people have to bring to the table to succeed in this life. And Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. And uh, maybe you don't believe that, right? Like maybe you're not saying like, yeah, I'm like pro pride and arrogance. But at the, very, at the very least, like most of us, like if we're positive on humility, then we think it's like a cute character trait. We're sort of like, yeah, it's nice to have. It's kind of like being funny or being a good listener. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, you could be humble. That'd be a good thing that you have. But for Jesus, it is so much more than that. It is the pathway to living as he is calling you to live. It's the only way that you can truly submit yourself to his way of life. Pride, then, the alternative becomes like the root of so many of our sins, so many of the ways that we're fighting and working against Jesus. Instead, humility is thinking of yourself less. Meaning that you're not thinking that the world revolves around you. You're not thinking that you're constantly fighting for some sort of place or status. You're not trying to earn something to impress the people around you. Instead, you're content in who you are. This is a funny thing to try and identify, right? Pride, humility. Like, it's, it's tricky to, like, label those kind of thoughts and ideas in your mind and in your heart. It's easy to point out in someone else. Right? Nobody point fingers right now in this room, but you can probably like think of someone that you've seen that has a lot of pride. You can even think of someone that you've seen that is humble, but even trying to like teach those thoughts out in your own heart and in your own mind is a difficult thing to do. For us today, I want you to think about it this way. Pride is that voice that pops up and talks about what you deserve. It talks about the way that people ought to treat you talks about how impressive you are and how important you are. It talks about making sure that everyone knows what you know and that they can hear your voice. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not like confusing it with like, you know, sort of like your, your self-talk, like especially thinking like negative self-talk. Like, you know, humility is not the opposite of those things of saying like, well, you're not worth anything and no one needs to hear your voice and you, uh, are sh you shouldn't be a person of value, you're unimportant. That's not humility, just because it's the opposite of pride. No, humility is actually just thinking of yourself less, taking yourself out of the equation so that the world is not about you. Humility doesn't care about any of that. And Jesus here says, if you are not humble, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're a person like me who struggles with pride, that should be like a little bit, like kind of, like that should grab you a little bit, right? It should be a little bit scary. Now, in order to understand Jesus' metaphor here, where he says that you need to be like a little child in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, we have to go back in time, and we have to remember a time once in the ancient Near East where children were actually afraid of adults. Now, this is difficult to imagine today because it's not actually present anymore, right? Like, kids are not scared of adults. That is something that has gone away. Maybe it hasn't happened for the past 50 years. I don't know. Now parents, like, obey their children's whim. Like, have you ever seen, like, parents running around like a servant to their child? Like, oh, I'm sorry, let me take good care of you, that kind of thing, right? They teach them how to, like, manipulate adults in their lives so that they can get even more. Like, it's a weird thing that's going on right now. You ever get stuck, like, in a negotiation with a kid? Have you ever been in this kind of situation? Uh, I don't think this would have happened in the ancient Near East. I'm not saying that they were, like, doing it right or anything like that. I'm just pointing out that it's different, right? You're like, please do what I want, little Timmy. And Timmy is like, you will refer to me as Tim the Great when you speak to me, sir. 
Otherwise, I'm going to tell everyone that you said something creepy and you'll go to jail forever. And you're like, oh my gosh, you have all the authority in this relationship and I have none of it. Kids are crazy now, right? Sarah was working at a school once and they would have kids that would just walk out of class and roam the halls and they were called elopers because that sounded cuter, right? Like, oh, he's eloping again. Like, no, he's running away, he's running around. And literally, uh, one time, like, the principal is standing out in the hall, she's talking on her walkie-talkie, she's following Tim the Great around uh, the school and she is like, hey, Tim, you should go back to class. And he's like, nah, and she's like, all right. I mean, this person is like making like decent money, probably advanced degrees, leads a team of 50 adults, and this like uh, three-year-old is just sort of marching up and down the hallway like, you can't do anything for me, right? Like, it is a weird state and a fun experiment, right? We'll see how kids turn out as a result of this. I don't know, it's kind of a fun swing and that kid could be president one day and then we would all have to call him Tim the Great. But all that being said, I'm trying to prep your mind just a little bit that when Jesus says children here, he may not mean children in the same way that we talk about children. I also think, <clears throat> even though kids back then were seen as sort of like junior members of society, less than or half adults or something like that, I don't necessarily think that this is like categorically different than the way that children are today. Now there might be a little bit more sort of like pride that we probably instill in kids at a very young age now, but I still think there is something unique and special about a child that allows them to be a good example for us for how we should approach Jesus and how we should think of ourselves. See, the disciples over here were arguing, like, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which one of us is going to be the best? Children don't have to do that, right? Now, they may argue, you know, all kind of stuff about who's going to be, you know, the better player on the team or something like that. But there's something sort of unique and special about kids that they just sort of, like, like being involved. They like being there. Like, can you imagine being this kid that Jesus brings up? Uh, to like hang out with him and use him as like a little object lesson. He calls a child to him, that kid walks up. That kid is not thinking like, great, now I'm gonna be number two in heaven. This is a great new position for me. Uh, I'm gonna show all of these disciples. I'm gonna make them work for me. They don't, no, no, no. That kid was glad to be called by Jesus. The kid was glad to be brought to his side. I think kids kind of approach life without the same sort of like self-concept that we have. Definitely not without, or without the same sort of self-obsession, right? Kids don't assume things about themselves. They don't presume to anything. They don't pretend towards greatness. They don't have to flex on each other the same way that adults do. They rush into the world with a weird sense of like confidence, but also understanding of their place. They don't know or care if they're like the best dancer in the world. They're just gonna dance. That's sort of the lack of self-concept that they have. They don't care if they're even in the lamest position on the field. They're sort of glad to be playing, especially younger kids. They're just happy to be where they are. That's true humility, true contentment. It's, it's being able to forget yourself and actually attach your identity to Jesus, which is what is happening with this kid in this story today, right? He is only known in his like proximity to Jesus. If you think about it, your identity is built on three layers, three layers. The bottom one is your actual self, just the person that you actually are. The next layer is what you think about yourself, your sort of self-concept. And then the layer on top of that is what the God of the universe thinks of you. And here's my sort of hypothesis, because I definitely have not achieved this yet. If we could find a way to remove that middle layer, that layer that says, hey, you need to think about yourself, you're important, 
uh, you're a big deal, people need to value you, people need to respect you. If we could take that layer out of the equation, wouldn't we be happier? If you just had the two layers left, so you took out what you think of you, just left what God thinks of you and who you actually are, wouldn't we be better off? Cut out the middleman, as it were. Because then you would just be left with what God thinks about you, which is that God hates it when we sin, hates it when we do wrong, when we work against our way, or his way. He hates to see us cause harm to ourselves, cause harm to others. He is not in favor of that. But he also loves us completely and unconditionally. Like I want you to think about both your like positive and negative like self-talk. Like maybe imagine a moment this week when you were like prideful. I know I can think of one immediately. Pops right into my head. Think about that time when you felt slighted by that person and you realize that's just because you think you're really important. Or you think about that time when you felt like you needed to stand up and be heard, but you weren't being heard enough and you realize that's just that pride. Like imagine taking that out of it and replacing it with the fact that God loves you enough to send his son to die on the cross for your sins. And that you don't have to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything to earn that. Imagine if that was the way that you looked at yourself. Imagine if you looked at yourself the way that God looks at you. Not perfect, broken, constantly prone to sin, and still beloved by him. That is a way that we can approach the kingdom of God. And so when we hear that voice of pride popping up, trying to establish, hey, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I'm the most important, we need to immediately come back at it, come back and uh, uh, confront that voice. with a voice that says, what does God actually think about me? does God think about me? Next up, sermon number two, serve children. Serve children. Have you ever noticed that Christianity has like this weird bent towards the next generation? If you've read through scripture, then you have seen that there's sort of like a little bit of a focus towards the next generation, a particular bent towards that. Now, I hope that you've heard me preach numerous times about the harm that the American church has caused towards like the way that we think about family, uh, it kind of idolizes marriage and family and pretends that you're like a second-class citizen if you don't have a kid. This is not the case in Scripture, right? Like, this is not the way that Jesus thinks about children. This is not the way that Paul thinks about children, that, like, you need to be married and have a family and a white picket fence in order to matter in his kingdom. That is not true. It is a lie from Satan to try and divide us uh, as the church. But there is an undeniable focus on Christianity or in Christianity on kids. Jesus here, as a man with no kids and no wife, unless you watch the Da Vinci Code, uh, Jesus, presumably, no wife, no kids, like, uh, is a guy who is focusing on children. And he's saying that you should as well. That's why here at Dwell, like, we don't try and just say, like, only families are important. That's not the case. But we do invite the entire community, the entire family of God to actually commit to something, like when we do a baby dedication. And we say, hey, you are joining around this child and this family so that you can care and love for the next generation. And it comes from statements like this one in Scripture, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What we have here is a call and a warning at the same time. A warning to be serious in the way that you lead others, especially children. And that when you pull them astray, you end up harming yourself. 
we must then take seriously the way that we lead and guide others. I think it's interesting here that Jesus says we need to have faith like a child. So he's saying, like, you adults should be like this child over here. And then he says, but then whoever causes one of these children to sin, it's going to be bad for them. Now, I think he's doing kind of two things at once here, right? He's talking about children, but I think he's also talking about people who you are going to lead, right? Or else why have this whole passage about causing one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, right? I believe that when you cause someone to sin, it actually hurts your relationship with Jesus. We need to take this very, very seriously. This is a dark and graphic metaphor. To have a millstone, which is like this giant stone that they would use to grind uh, stuff that they grind. I don't even know. Mills? What is that? I don't even I probably should look this up. Grains. That's a word for it. So they would grind stuff, right, with this giant millstone. It's a big rock. They would tie it around your neck. I've done the research. Back in the ancient Near East, if you had a big rock tied around your neck and they threw you in the water, you'd drown, right? I don't know how it would happen now. I haven't seen a millstone, clearly, but I think it would be fairly similar. This is a graphic and terrible thing to happen to you. Jesus says you need to take it very seriously that you do not cause someone else to sin, that you don't cause especially these little ones who believe in me to sin. I believe that the advice that we have here, or the, the command and call from Jesus, is that we better take it seriously, the way that we lead each other. And when we lead each other to cause someone else to sin, that we actually end up hurting ourselves. We need to take it seriously when we dole out advice. It's easy to be like kind and humble to ourselves or in our own lives or challenge ourselves, right? When somebody does us wrong, we're like, yeah, yeah, I should be nice to that person. I get that. It's weird how when we switch into advice mode, we can like turn into a completely different person. So somebody like kicks me in the shin and I'm like, all right, what would Jesus do? I need to be good about this. All right, I'm not gonna like, you know, murder that guy. Then you tell like your best friend about it and your best friend's like, we should kill them. And you're like, well, dial it back just a little bit. We've turned it into this weird thing where like, oddly enough, giving very unchristian advice to each other is completely acceptable somehow, right? Because it's more confrontational to be like, actually, hey man, that guy that kicked you in the shin, you should probably forgive him. That's not good friend advice. We don't like that, feels icky, feels gross. Yet Jesus here is saying, when you cause someone else to sin, it is not good. I actually dream of a church, I believe many of you do as well, where we could live life together and push each other towards godliness and living the way of Jesus together, where our counsel is more scripture than pseudo-psychology, where advice is categorically different from the advice that we can get from the world, where we have humility enough to seek out our faults and to have them exposed by our brothers and sisters. It's a high and lofty dream. And I believe we see glimmers of it, and I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can actually achieve it together. Anyway, that was just half a sermon for this point. Here we go. Uh, it was also a call. Jesus says that to receive a child is to receive him. Now, this receive word actually translates most directly as take hold. So Jesus is saying, whoever takes hold of a child takes hold of... No, that's weird, right? Uh, the connotation for this verb, you shouldn't take hold of children, all right? I'm very clear of this. That's not a good thing to do. The connotation of this verse is actually to show hospitality to, to welcome in. That's what this receive actually means. You're taking someone into your home, so to speak. And Jesus says something really beautiful here, if you think about it. When you show hospitality to a child, when you receive them, when you take them in, you're actually doing it to Jesus. 
That's a beautiful thing, right? Kids are some of the most vulnerable members in our society. And they're also the key to the future of our society. That's kind of a weird thing to happen at once, right? Some of the most vulnerable and some of the most important for the future of the world. There's a lot riding on them, and they are the least capable to do anything about it. Jesus gives us this incentive that to care for them is actually to care for and welcome him. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves, and it doesn't matter if you work with kids professionally, it doesn't matter if you work and dwell kids, it doesn't matter what your life looks like, if you like kids, you don't like kids, the question is, what are you missing from your life of following Jesus if you are not actually showing hospitality, if you're not receiving children the way that Jesus calls us to do? I don't want to make some sort of grand statement that I definitely don't even believe that is just like, Hey, if you don't like kids, you're not following Jesus. That is not the case, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. But if you're not doing something to care for, to love, and to show hospitality to the next generation, you're actually missing out on a good and pleasant and beautiful gift that Jesus is giving to you. Right? Jesus says to receive them is to receive me. Isn't that something you want to do? Do you want to receive Jesus? Well, this is the way how. So you might be asking yourself, how do we fix this? I'm sorry, this is going to be a little bit of a commercial. But in almost a month from now, we're going to have our five-year celebration, and we're actually going to do something really cool where we do like a uh, ministry fair where we're highlighting three different ways uh, that you can actually serve people in our city and the, or around the world even. Uh, and the way that we're choosing to do that is actually through focusing on children. So this sort of worked out that it was a little bit of a teaser. We're going to have three organizations who are going to be here uh, at Dwell in some way represented that you can find a way to serve and receive children. The first is Compassion International, which we've served with for multiple years now. Many of you guys uh, have kids like Mauricio, who is our Compassion International child from Guatemala. Uh, that you have been loving for, loving and caring uh, for from afar for years and years. Compassion gives them food, uh, education, housing. It takes care of all of their basic needs and shares the gospel with them. And all it costs to you is just a little bit a month. This is the best option. For those of you guys who are like, I hate kids, but I would like to receive Jesus, this is the easiest way to do it, all right? It's probably not a good attitude. I just want to give you this option, right? And if you feel bad because you immediately said, yes, that's me, you should probably get two or three of these kids, okay? Uh, and let a professional take good care of them, all right? Next up, save our youth. If you like kids a little bit more, uh, this is probably a good option for you, especially if you like teenagers. Many of us in this room actually had transformative experiences with Jesus important to our growth and maturity uh, that happened to us while we were teenagers. Save Our Youth is actually a mentoring program that we're starting here uh, at Dwell. Uh, it's actually a program that's been going on for decades in our city, but now we're taking part of it, and uh, there'll be more information coming about that. Finally, Hope and Home is going to be the third organization that we're highlighting. Uh, Hope and Home is the foster care agency that Sarah and I are going through. Uh, also, the Martinelli Taylors are going through there, and we have a, a support group that we actually host once a month that meets right here at Dwell. Uh, if you're at all interested about foster care and welcoming and receiving, showing hospitality uh, to a child in your own home and in your own family, or supporting and coming alongside a family who does that, uh, you have multiple opportunities to do that in totally different ways uh, through Hope and Home. I'm saying all of this to you to give you just a little teaser. You have a month now. If there is any small part of you that was like, man, I really should be serving children more. I really should be receiving them more. If there's any small part of you, you have a month now to sort of like begin preparing and asking God, hey, what do you want me to do? 
What could this look like? And maybe it's through one of these three organizations. Maybe it's in another way. Maybe it's through Dwell Kids. Now, this is where it gets really commercially, right? Like, it's almost like a church cliche where I'm like, kids are crazy. You guys should all go back there. And we show, like, a picture, and it's like a Dwell Kids volunteer, and they have gum in their hair, and they're, like, crying, and they're like, we desperately need more people than Dwell Kids, right? That's what usually happens. Instead, what I'm going to say is thank you to all of you who do Dwell Kids. Man, can I just say uh, we've seen some of our children come to faith in Jesus over the past few months. Uh, we've been able to see growth and discipleship in them. Today they are learning about my, my mic died. I couldn't even say it. I was going to impress you guys a lot. Sorry about that. Today they are learning about Mephibosheth, I think. Nope, that's not right. Mephibosheth, sure. All right, so this is a Bible character that you don't even know about. These kids are going to be better followers of Jesus than we even are. Praise God for you dwell volunteers, dwell kids volunteers. No, and this is going to be a challenging thing. Know that every week that you're walking in there, no matter what it is that you're doing, you're actually receiving Jesus by welcoming these kids. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Finally, fight temptation. Don't get these confused in your notes. It's serve children, fight temptation, all right? Uh, not the other way around. Make sure that you put that right down correctly. Finally, Jesus calls us to fight temptation. He gives us a dark warning that might actually surprise you, and that is that temptation is actually necessary. He says this in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying they are necessary, but they are regrettable. That's what this uh, word woe is sort of like indicating, right? Uh, the message translation actually says that it is a doom to the world. Uh, but also Jesus lets us know that they are necessary, and that word sort of could translate as inevitable. It's inevitable that temptations come. It's necessary. It's part of life, but it's a terrible and awful thing that it is going to happen to you. This is what Jesus is saying to you. They are necessary, but they are not good. They're going to happen to you, but I don't I like that they are going to happen to you. Woe to you for the fact that they are happening to you. Let's pause for a moment and just like bring that home to us for a second. Like, I want you to, like, think about the last time that you were tempted. Just imagine it in your mind. If you're really conscious and aware of your own life and your sin, then probably, you probably don't even have to think back that far to when you were tempted to do something that was against God's good plan for the universe. Maybe you were tempted to hate someone. Maybe you were tempted to lust after someone that wasn't yours, that you didn't that is not uh, your spouse. Maybe it was a temptation to take something that's not yours. Maybe it was a temptation towards pride. Don't you like feel kind of bad just like thinking about it, like that temptation? Like whether you succumb to it or not, whether you actually like acted on it or not, don't you like feel like hurt and kind of like weirdly embarrassed? This passage tells us that Jesus feels bad too. He says it's terrible. Jesus hates that you have to go through that, but he also wants you to know that it's necessary or at least inevitable. And so in some ways that like guilt and pressure that we're feeling for even being tempted to do something wrong, like I'm not sure that that's from Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't want you to act on it, but having the temptation is just something that's lamentable to Jesus, but he recognizes that it's going to happen to you. 
necessary. Maybe it was necessary because overcoming that temptation actually makes your faith stronger and your commitment to him greater. Maybe that temptation was necessary for you because you actually succumbed to that temptation and acted on it and it makes you realize how great your need is for him. Maybe it's just an inevitable result of living in a broken world. But Jesus tells us what we, do, what we should do with our temptation. He actually takes it a step way further. He says this in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or to be thrown, or I'm sorry, two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I actually used to hang out uh, with some folks uh, who were in recovery from different types of addictions and stuff. They would talk about having the gift of rock bottom. This is like a common phrase, especially in like AA or uh, NA kind of circles. Uh, they say that many addicts actually don't hit rock bottom uh, because of their addictions. And because of that, they never actually beat their addictions. Because they say, the, the idea goes, that only at rock bottom do you really realize how bad it is and what you're willing to sacrifice to beat this thing. Like I had a buddy who uh, was trying to like get uh, rid of his heroin addiction. He was trying to beat it. Uh, he was in school. He was getting his master's degree. He was trying to become an architect. Um, and there were different times when he would try and like find these little methods where like, okay, maybe I can just cut it back. Maybe I can do this. Maybe if I'm just strong enough, I'll do it. And eventually he had to quit school, uh, move to a residential clinic. Uh, he had to sell what little stuff that he had left. He had to give up on this dream that he had been chasing for years. He'd already dumped so much money into this dream, had to give all of that up. He was also just a few years away from achieving what he wanted to do uh, with like a nice and good paying, respectable job of being an architect. And instead, he had to give all of it up because he had tried beating it while keeping everything that he had, and he discovered that it was impossible. He tried beating it while keeping his life going. It became impossible for him to do. I think this is kind of the idea that Jesus is getting to here, that we cannot be lackadaisical. We cannot take sins that just live in our lives we can't take them lightly. We cannot take, keep a pet sin around and not take drastic measures to get rid of it. Obviously, this is true about drugs and alcohol, and I think when we think about it in that, like those kind of like chemical addictions in our brains, we can like understand it. But isn't this true for anything that we do? Like, isn't it weird how like addictive our brains can become, especially to doing things that are like against God's will and plan? We need to come to terms with the idea that for many of our sins, it's going to require some very drastic measures to actually get them out in our lives. It's true for pride, like we talked about earlier. It's true for hate and lust and jealousy and greed and overworking and underworking and lying and ignoring the Sabbath and whatever the case may be, it is true for you that very often sin is going to require a much more drastic solution to get rid of than we are often prepared to take. These temptations in your life are going to kill you if you don't take serious measures to stop them. 
And I don't think what Jesus is telling us here is to literally pluck out our eye. I think he wants to, us just to make sure that we know how serious he is, what he wants to put on the table. Do you find yourself drinking too much? You might have to commit the Colorado cultural sin of going cold turkey. Does hanging out with certain people cause you to act in a way that doesn't represent Jesus? You might have to do the weird thing and say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't think I can hang out with you guys anymore. Does social media cause you to be jealous? Does it cause you to be greedy? Does it cause you to believe less in God and believe more in your own power? might have to delete it off of your phone. It's funny here that Jesus is talking about plucking out our own eyes, and yet that call sounds more intimidating to give up our phone than even that. The reason is because people uh, in recovery very often say uh, that people who haven't hit rock bottom, they say that they haven't hit it yet. That's kind of like the language around that. We know that these things are harmful for us. We know that they're eventually going to kill us. We know that they're eventually going to cause even more harm to ourselves and to others. And yet we think we can just keep them around. We think we can manage. We think we can deal. It can go further. It can go worse. It can get deeper into this. One of the great blessings that God gives us is that we have the opportunity to taste heaven here on earth, that there are these moments of pure joy, there are these moments of pure ecstasy that can come only from him. One of the other blessings that we probably don't realize is that he also allows us to taste hell here on earth. Anyone who's come to rock bottom will describe it exactly that way. Jesus says that it's actually better to cut off your own arm or to pluck out your own eye than to face that. And not only now, but for eternity. Here's the thing. If that's all Jesus said, we would be in a lot of trouble. What's weird about Jesus is you have to take these heavy and dark and painful ideas that he offers to us, take them as truth, but also recognize that he is the one who wants to redeem and save us from this dark and terrible truth. And that is found uh, even in John chapter 8, 34 through 36. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you've ever been addicted, you know this is true. If you haven't fully thought out the grip that your own sin has on you, you probably don't know this is true, but you might find it out one day. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son, meaning Jesus, if sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. Jesus lets you know of the curse. Jesus lets you know of the illness and also brings you the cure. Perhaps you say to yourself, man, I am a person that needs to be set free. 
If you've never come to a place in your life where you've actually offered your entire life over to Jesus and accepted his forgiveness for your sins, this is the path to freedom. It's the only way out. It's the only way to actually escape. The only way to actually find that freedom. For those of you guys who are actually followers of Jesus, who have committed your life to following him, You need to know the truth of Jesus here, which is that you can be set free. The thing that you're doing or that you just think or that you keep sort of just to yourself and no one else knows but is actually killing you inside, Jesus can free you from that. Jesus is bigger than any sort of like psychology that we might say, oh, you'll be stuck forever. Jesus is bigger than the patterns that you've gone through to try and get out of this thing. Jesus is bigger than the sin that has entangled you. And he is saying that you do not have to be enslaved to this anymore. I will set you free and I will set you free indeed. And not just for now, for this brief moment while we are living here on earth, but for eternity. That is a beautiful hope and truth from Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.